0: Motherboard, proudly brought to you by Loopy Lou, Lidl's award-winning baby range. Hello, I'm Avril Flynn and you're very welcome to the Motherboard podcast. This podcast series features parents talking about the beautiful but often hard work of raising children today. Before we start this week's podcast, I want to let you know about our amazing offer from our sponsor. Joining me in studio today is Sarah Dove. You're very welcome, Sarah. Sarah is a mum of two and she's here to discuss her adoption story. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. Sarah has written a really beautiful short book entitled My Father Wasn't French, which documents her adoption journey. I was lucky enough to read it. I've actually read it three times because it was just fascinating. Was it a difficult book for you to write? It was actually it
1: was difficult on several different levels. Um, Firstly, it was difficult emotionally. Secondly, it was difficult because I had never written before. So at the end of my journey tracing my birth mother, there were so many coincidences and so many things that needed to be documented for the future. I tried to write it myself at home, talking to other people who had written books Other friends. They said, oh, you have to sit down every afternoon for two hours and, and write it. So I tried that. I tried doing it fictionally and it didn't work. So I needed to stand back from it and have lessons. And I was very lucky to be able to link in with a lady called Anna Fox, who um, runs a writer's writer's courses in Dorking um Doki creates and I spoke to her and when she heard what I wanted to do, she suggested to me that I go to classes in Doki run by my teacher, Christine Ryan, who teaches the Amherst way of writing, which is very freestyle, very much opens your mind to your past and your imagination. And I just loved it from the first class. There'd be ten of us in a class and everybody could, had different achievements different ways of writing. So they were six week courses. And I think probably at the end of the fifth six week course, I started to write various things to introduce the idea of my adoption and get feedback from them. And then I grew in confidence doing that. Then I had a lot of homework to do and lay out about how I was going to go about it. And the strange thing about writing an emotional story like that is that you've got to be emotional. You can't sit down one afternoon and decide I'm going to do it you've got to be in an emotional state, which is not something you really want to do. So I watched endless episodes of Long Lost Family. I went down to my parents' graves. I went back into my past. And I would still come home sometimes and sit down and get nothing. And then one day I'd be driving in the car or walking along the pier and it would just suddenly flood. And then I'd have to rush home and write it down. So it's not a normal process in the way I wrote it. If... um. But it worked for me,
0: but a real catharsis in kind of getting your story from your perspective down in black and white,
1: it was. And what I wanted to achieve with this, and I want the listeners to understand this. Is that I just wanted them, want everybody to understand that what I wanted to achieve was what it's like to make the decision and how you go about it and how huge it is when you actually meet your birth mother, parents. And what happens afterwards to you psychologically, because it sounds very romantic and, it you know, all the programs on TV have happy endings. And this is proving quite difficult for adoption agencies. I've spoken to them because they're all happy endings. They're not always happy endings and they do change the way you think about yourself.
0: And let's talk about your decision to actually go back and try and trace your birth mother. You were a mother yourself. What were the elements that you decided now was the right time?
1: Um just coincidence, really. I was sitting in the kitchen one day and I was listening to the radio. And in the last 10 to 15 years, it's been talked about all the time. I lived in an era where it was a secret. You didn't speak about it. If you told people that you were adopted, they didn't know how to say or what to do. I mean, I even had a boyfriend who wouldn't take me to the local pub because it was called the Orphan Girl. There was was such a stigma to it. And now for a long time it's been talked about and it just made me think about it more. uh, Also being a parent, I wanted to know the history, uh, health history. So I just heard this lady on the radio and just that one sentence she said when she had decided to trace her birth mother and she hadn't done it soon enough and her birth mother had died just before she traced her. And the family had said that all her life she had wished that she had met her lost baby and that just made me think that I would try and do it for m- my birth mother if she was one of that type not for me I really didn't need it I mean I had such a wonderful life my adopted parents Um, I wasn't longing for anything I didn't feel abandoned but I just thought this is something really good I might be able to do and I didn't want to leave it in the evening, in case she did pass away before I got
0: to her and so to talk about your your journey, you then contacted, you had always known that you were adopted. Yes, always. And then your journey started by actually contacting the adoptive agency to find out, was it possible to actually have a look at your file? Can you talk me through that, what that process was like?
1: Uh, well, first of all, it was really difficult to make the call, that phone call. <laughs> It's like not wanting to be in the doctor for results or something. I, I, I couldn't choose a time or place. I was going to sit at the kitchen and be serious about it. I was going to sit on the bed and be relaxed. Uh, so, And I was really nervous making that first call. But when I did, I got a really nice, kind lady at the end of the phone. I realized, I'm, you know, I'm not the only one and she's going to talk me through it. And so
0: she set up a date for me to go and see her. I, th- I think it was about a week later. And so then you went and you met, met that, that person and they were obviously able to tell you some information, but also told you that they would have to go and find out more information. Did that make things very difficult that you? they had this file which had information about you and they didn't show it to you straight, straight away? It was um, when you go in first.
1: They're not ready to tell you anything. I mean, they have to counsel you, find out why you're tracing and what exactly it is you want to get from it. It's, it's wonderful, actually. It's frustrating in the beginning, but the way they mind you and the way to make sure that you're in the right frame. And I went in there fully confident that I knew everything. Every scenario that could have happened, you know, could have been incest, could have been rape, but I didn't know half the things that can happen. For example, they had seen <clears throat> people that had traced families where... The mother and fathers actually remarried and there were siblings and the siblings rejected the found child, you know, for
0: be it inheritance or just jealousy. Yeah, I mean, as you said, the idea can sometimes not be the reality. And I suppose the job of the adoption agency is to prepare you for that. So they have it staged that they don't just hand you over everything and go, there you go.
1: Oh, totally. And as you mentioned about the file, that was very strange because I knew that the ladies and it was the same and I refer to her as the kind voice. I didn't even name her because she was just the kind voice. I knew that they had gone through the file. I mean, they knew, but they weren't ready to tell me because they knew I wasn't ready. So, yes, that's very strange. It's like um, being in a headmistress's office and knowing that she has your exam results and won't give them to you. And I really wanted to just grab it and run out the door. You know, I really just wanted to know. And then another lady came in and she sat down and I realized that she was really the counselor and the assessor. And then I felt even more frustrated because it sounded like (laughs) they needed two people to decide whether this girl should have access to her
0: details. But the reason why they do all that is because, as you said, you need to make sure that a person is as prepared. I mean, nobody can be fully prepared, but are prepared for all the eventualities.
1: Oh, totally. And that's why I feel very strongly about how easy it's become now through media to trace your birth parents. If you have an happy ending, it's wonderful. But if it gets very difficult and you don't have a counsellor or somebody to refer to, if I hadn't had that, I certainly would have sunk long before I met her. I was really prepared by the time that happened.
0: And you ha- you know, professionally, you need that support network to ensure if things go well, great. Yeah. If things don't go well, that you are properly supported. Uh, totally,
1: then- totally. And actually, what I didn't mention in the book, which is probably important, was that at the next meeting, when we did start to discuss details, they told me that she'd actually been trying to trace me, that she's in a nursing home and that she'd actually, a friend of hers had decided because she was getting elderly that she should trace her birth her birth uh, daughter. So she had a file of my birth mother trying to trace me at the same time as So you me. were both looking for We were for only each six other. months out. Wow. So she was actually going into my birth mother preparing her to meet me and she was actually preparing me to meet her. But no details could be given to either party.
0: Wow. So eventually the details were given to you and what did you, can you tell me a bit about, you know, the story of that little baby?
1: Yes, well, she opened up the file and um, she read out partly what I knew, my date of birth, that I was born in Cork and that my mother had had me out of wedlock when she was only 26. And there was no support and no money to keep me. And they lived on a farm and I'd been given up for adoption. That I had already known, actually, that had been given to my adoptive parents. And that's all I had. I just knew that in those days, the baby that was adopted would be the same religion from the same area as the adoptive parents wanted to adopt from. And maybe by coincidence, I looked very like my adoptive father. So it was it was good that that join had been made. Um. so in terms of the little baby, it's very sad, really, because my birth mother was cast out, really, when she became pregnant. And her mother had died when she was only six weeks old from toxemia.
0: So she was raised by she would, her, her father.
1: Well, she wouldn't tell me, and I don't know. There's a huge gap between her as a young baby and right up to when she got pregnant with me at the age of 26. She wouldn't speak about it and I wasn't able to ever find out. I do know she went to boarding school and she was unhappy there. And I do know she had certain learning difficulties. So she suffered a lot socially. And my father worked on the farm. She became pregnant with him and instantly the family were shamed. In their view, she was a shame. So she went to live with the local rector until she was due to have the baby. And she went to hospital, had me natural birth, everything was fine. and then she went to mother baby home in Cork. Now, for me, this was the turning point of where the suffering must have come in because she knew she wasn't going to be able to keep the baby. And she was in the mother and nursing home for four months before I was adopted with her baby beside her, and rows and rows of other young women who were waiting for their babies to be chosen. So the bond would have become extremely close, as you can imagine, over four months. And every day she would have wondered, is this the day they're taking my baby away? And she would look down at the baby, you know, with beautiful eyes and unconditional love, which you know, she was cast out you now by people who loved her. I know that the baby wouldn't be hers forever. And then one day. My adopted parents who had already been to the adoption agency, obviously, and had already um, being told that this suitable baby was here and then they wanted a girl, um, came to see me and the baby was just lifted away from my birth mother, brought to a private place at the back of the building. Because I always imagined my birth mother must have been known instinctively that that's, this was the day and she would have been looking out at the drive to see if she saw anyone come out. But It was a back entrance, always very secretive in those days. No connection, no nothing. Um, and then my parents, fell. my adoptive parents fell in love with me and they came back and collected me the next day. So poor Mary was then left with no baby and family who didn't want her. And she went up to Dublin to find work.
0: It's indelibly sad, isn't it? that, yeah. that One of the things that you speak of in your, in, in one of the chapters in your book is that kind of blame and shame that's associated that there would have been all of that love. And you're rejected doubly, you're rejected by your own family and then you're because you've gotten pregnant and then you're rejected by society because you've gotten pregnant when both of those things happened because you Mm. fell in love, possibly with somebody. Mm. So moving on then. So you'd found out bits of the story that you were going to meet her or that you felt you were ready to meet her. How did they tell you that they knew where she was? And uh, they brought me into the office again and said they had news. And I was
1: I was very excited and nervous at the same time. And they said that she was in a nursing home in Leary, which took me by surprise, really, because my adoptive mother was still alive and very ill and in a nursing home in Leary also. Um, she was paralyzed from the waist down after a stroke. And so now that two of them were very close and um, in proximity, Two different nursing homes were very close in proximity. Um, I was very calm, actually. I think I was calmer when the day came that I was going to meet her th- than I was with the lead-up, because I was anxious what they were going to find. And now it was actually going to happen. So I went home, and they said they'd contact with a date. And irrelevant stuff went through my head all the time. Like, what will I wear... You know, would she like me? Do I bring in flowers? Will I bring in family photographs? I mean, an awful lot of it was a distraction from the real thing that was about to happen. Um, Which and was this. This? this monumental meeting was now going to take place. I knew she was ill. I knew she'd been trying to trace me. I knew it wasn't a happy situation I was walking into. But I was excited. I was excited for her and I was excited for me. I was
0: Thank you so much for that. And we'll come back to that story of that meeting. And thank you so much. That's the end of part one. Don't go anywhere because in part two, we'll be discussing more about that meeting and also how Sarah has moved forward with her life and also the fact that she's an amazing mother herself, how it has impacted on her mothering journey. Welcome back to part two of the Motherboard podcast. Today we're chatting to the fantastic Sarah Dove about her very personal adoptive story. She's written the most beautiful short book entitled My Father Was in French, which, again, I absolutely love that title. One of the things, Sarah, that I was wondering about before we talk about you actually meeting your adoptive mother was as an adopted person, you're a mother of two And one of the things I love in the book is that it comes across very clearly how much you adore both of your own children. When you became a mother yourself, did it make you wonder more about your own past and and journey or or not so much?
1: Yeah, I think it made me think an awful lot about my birth mother and how difficult it must have been for her to give a baby away, especially after four months. I mean, it's never easy and a lot of babies were taken as soon as they were born, but as the bond is created, Um, And I refer in the book to the invisible thread because it's something that can never be broken. I did. I thought a lot about that and I really appreciated the fact that I had two beautiful, healthy children and I didn't have to give them up. I did. Worry is the wrong word. I was curious what they might inherit going back over the years because... And that comes
0: back to the title. So explain
1: the the brain title. Well. I was told I was adopted from very young, I mean, five or six. I hadn't a clue what it meant, but my parents had decided. And I think it's the right decision that they would tell me always that I was adopted and I was very special and I, um, that my mum couldn't keep me for various reasons. But I made up my own stories because I thought, right, well, you know, I'm really special, I mean, I'm way more special than anyone else. And so I would tell stories that I was a princess and the queen had too many princesses that she couldn't keep me. And then I I would try my very best to to tell stories that I was foreign. I wanted to be foreign. I have no idea why. And I wanted to be French most of all. And during my childhood, um, people used to look into the pram sometimes and say, she's very dark-skinned, she must be foreign. And as I got older, I had very dark hair. And again... People would say, Oh, she's definitely got foreign blood. I say there's French in her. And I really wanted to be French. So one of the first things I was told when I went into the adoption agency when they opened the file was that my father was anything but French. Uh, he was a hardworking farm lad in in Cork. And for some reason I was so disappointed. <laughs> it made no sense. But I really wanted this mystic mis- mystique French. Prince or some amazing background, and minor so European I, royal of some description. Exactly. So now I was a commoner and I had to get on with it. Um So, yes, but one thing that gave me great joy, on the other hand, when I learned more about my birth father was that he worked with horses and I am addicted to horse riding. I've had horses since I was 21. They are my total passion and your
0: therapy and, and therapy. your love. And, have, and, and it's been in
1: my blood since I was a child. My um, adopted Mother ruled, but very little. So it, it was born into me and I was ecstatically happy about that. So I was happy about the horses and sad about the French.
0: <laughs> so let's go back to that monumental day where you first met your birth mother. And shortly thereafter, can you tell me what happened?
1: Yes, I met my counsellor from the adoption agency at the nursing home where my where weather was. Um, I had set, spent a long time deciding what I was going to wear because I didn't want her to be disappointed in me. I brought a camera to take pictures of her, I, and I had been recommended to me that, that that was fine to do. And I had brought flowers, and we went into the hall. And there was a big door on the left hand side and she was sitting in there. So my counselor went in first to speak to her, to prepare her. And one of the nurses came along and offered me tea. And then I started to get really nervous as the time actually came to open the door and go in and they let me go in on my own, which was the right thing to do, but strange. So I opened the door and there was an elderly lady in a big armchair in quite scruffy clothes with her head hanging down. Hanging on to her clothes, very nervous and not looking at me. And I went in and I said hello to her and she still didn't lift her head. And I said, I've come to see you. And, you know, I'm delighted to see you and I'm your child. And it's wonderful to have reached this point now where we can meet. And she looked up very briefly and then she shot her head back down again. And she said to me, you look like your father. Now I hadn't really given my birth father that much thought But for her, that was the first thing that she's registered that I looked very like him. Then she lifted her head. I sat beside her and I held her hands and to me, I looked at a complete stranger. And I wondered at one point, had they made a mistake? And this wasn't my birth mother to me. I didn't look anything like her. There was no joy from her to see me. She was very self-conscious. She was very, she was shaking. So the whole meeting had changed. So I put the flowers down, put the camera down. I knew now that I had an elderly woman who was very distraught, which I'm used to because my mother was in a nursing home just up the road. And I was used to nursing homes and used to sitting down with elderly people who were in a very sad state. So I just talked to her as she was to me, really like a stranger. But for her, I was her long lost baby. She eventually lifted her head up and looked at me and she said, you were a love child. It's the first words she said. So I said, I'm happy to hear that. And she said, I did love him, you know. And then she stopped talking again. And then the lady came in with tea and we sat down and we did tea and cake. But she still couldn't look at me. She was still rocking to and fro. And she was so ashamed of herself. Um, she looked at the flowers. She was always a great fan of flowers and she agreed that they should go into a fast, but she didn't want me to take any pictures or talk about my life or anything she just kept rocking to and fro and I just realized the damage that was done like she was holding this heavy rucksack of shame and that even though it hadn't been her fault the baby was taken she had carried that all her life Um, and nobody's ever released it and now I knew that I was the person who could do it so I said to her "Um, I had a good life and it's better to have loved and lost than never loved before. And that was a saying she obviously recognized because she sat up much straighter then. And then she did, her tears kept flowing down her cheeks. And I just thought, he poor damaged woman. So it was a short first meeting. It had to be because I feared for her health. Um, I was feared it would just be too much for her. So we had cups of tea and we talked a sort of general talk about the weather and flowers and um, it came to an end I think about half an hour later I tried to tell her how happy I'd been and she didn't want it ever all the time I knew her she wanted to know nothing about my life she wasn't happy at all she just never wanted to give me up so she would only ever speak a little bit about the days in the nursing home the day before and then she'd ask me when I was coming again but this was to change after many visits she started to get Way more cheerful. The nursing home noticed she was sitting up straight and looking forward to seeing me. I brought her loads of photographs of her grandchildren and both my children came in to visit her. She was very like my daughter, a huge similarity with the daughter. And we just filled her room with pictures of um, me and my children and weddings and animals. And now she had status. She was always the bed with no visitors and always the bed with no photos. Now she was flooded with photos and she had an identity. This was her daughter. I had to be very careful, though, because my adoptive mother was seriously ill and she was just up the road. And when she got close to death, I had to stop visiting Mary so often. And so f- just to cover myself and not upset Mary that because I lived just up the road, I told her I lived down in Wicklow and that I was very busy down there. And she accepted that. It got less less and less time I could give to Mary because I was emotionally, you know, emotionally wrapped up with my... My adopted mother, who was dying, um, but even after the year before that happened, uh, there was such a change in Mary. Like even the doctors said that her health had improved, and she she developed a quirky sense of humor. Now she'd been in a nursing home for nineteen years since she was sixty two.
0: So uh, she went in at a very young. age. She went in at a very
1: young age. I, we go back in the files, her medical files. As I had said to you before, she she did have learning difficulties and she was in and out of St. John of Gods several times. Um, but I, I don't want to accuse anyone because I don't know. But I think she went into the nursing home because it was easier than looking after her because it was only one aunt who had any interest in her.
0: So, I mean, that's unbelievable that, you know, at that early age, I mean that's such a young age to be put in a nursing home. And I suppose the thing that really came out for me in your beautiful book is that your birth mother carried that blame and that shame with her for that for her entire life. But the fact that you dealt with her with such kindness and compassion, that there was never any reluctance on your part, there was nothing to forgive on your part, that you were able to release that. And the last number of years were probably the happiest of her life. Yes, it was huge, and I felt very honoured to be able to do it. I knew she
1: wanted more from me. She wanted me to call her mum, and I had to explain to her that I couldn't do that. She wanted me to take her out, which I couldn't do, not because I didn't want to, but in fact she was a very heavy woman and not used to the outside world and would have taken two or three people to take her out. It may sound selfish, but the self-protection I had to keep going because my, my adoptive mother was so ill and I was doing everything like that with her. It just had to be visits and they were visits every six weeks um, and they were special to her and they were special to me. And she would tell me what she wanted me to bring in for her. Um, and it would range from cucumber sandwiches to books on flowers to macado biscuits. Um that's all she wanted was the visits. She really never wanted to know anything about my past. Now, I did introduce... My love of horses, because I knew her father and her mother rode and I came from a big hunting family. Um, but to my surprise, she was sad with that, not happy about it because she hated that. Her father used to go out hunting and, and um, you know, kill foxes. And I found photographs in one of her albums in the nursing home and there were pictures of her father and her mother. But all the animals were cut out. So... That She found that very distressing. She so said she never liked horses and she was made to ride And, you know, she would start to shake. So that was a bad memory for her. Um, but I enjoyed her visits and my daughter, Stephanie, came with me a lot. And we did we fussed over her birthdays and sometimes I would arrive in and she would have a present for me and I'd say to her, where did you get that from? And she said, oh, it doesn't matter. But she was taking things from other people's. <laughs> Wardrobes and ornaments and stuff because she wanted to give me presents. So I explained to her that that really wasn't the thing to do, um, and that if she wanted to get me something, because it was better to give her an out and the field cut off. You maybe ask one of the nurses. So sometimes I went in and she she would have asked somebody to get a book for me on horses, even though she didn't like the fact I rode. And I have a beautiful book, and she inscribed a very shaky writing to me, you know, with lots of love from your mother, and then. When my adoptive mother died, I explained it to Mary that I was very emotionally upset and I wouldn't be able to come and see her as often. And she, she she, took it in. It's the first time she's ever recognized the fact that there was another woman involved in my upbringing. And she said, I'm sad, you're sad. And that's all she said. And when I went to visit her again after my mum was buried, I think it was probably two months before I was in any kind of recovery to go back in and... Mary produced a card that she'd asked somebody to get out of her bag. And it just said to Sarah's mom from Sarah's mom. And I just thought that was so poignant. Like she still she recognized my mother and she recognized herself.
0: But it was very beautiful because in that short sentence, there there was healing there as well, because there was a recognition that you had, even though she didn't want to hear it, that you'd had a really, really nice life. Mm-hmm. And when you went to find her, It was actually for her and for her peace of mind, not Mm. for yourself, because it's not something that you needed, per se. You wanted to make Mm. sure that if somebody was looking for you, that they knew what a lovely life that you had had.
1: Yeah, and I think for her, it was her first time she thought that there was another woman that was suffering. You know, she probably had depicted that this, this woman who brought me up and had all the joys of having me probably had the perfect life. And she suddenly was able to join with the fact of the loss. And I think that's what allowed her to write that. But she was going down hill herself at that stage. She started to get very so at that stage after confused. a number of years, she had yeah, become very much
0: much more frail and quite unwell. and you and you noticed mm-hmm. that kind of by by steps that I she really did. I did. yeah. she became she became very mentally unstable as well
1: and very confused. She was also desperate to get out of the nursing home. She'd been in there for so long and she did see me as maybe in out several times. She never said it in a nasty way, but she'd seen a lot of her friends going to the hospice. She thought they were going to a nicer nursing home. She begged me to go to the hospice. But I would always tell the truth and explain to her what the hospice was. I, I never lied to her. I never said you know, you shouldn't be here or, you know, I'll try and get you into another nursing home. I never did that. I never promised her that. But in the background of all this was my mentor, my counsellor in the adoption agency. And there was many times that I wasn't as strong as I'm coming across. And I would ring her and she'd talk me through things. So for me to keep that strength with Mary and my birth mother very ill and dying, it was my counsellor at the other end of the phone who got me through that. And they were very careful of me as well, that I didn't overstretch with with two things going on. They're very, very careful of me. So in my case, I couldn't have done it without a counsellor. And so I just would like to say to people, the enormity of it is massive. And so oh, go in it too carefully, think it carefully and have plenty of support.
0: In the book... Um, your birth mother passed away um after you know when she had she was a good age at that stage but there was all, almost a, a peace in her passing and that you felt that at last that that suffering that she had the torment that she had had mm-hmm. was was at peace. When you think of her now, what do you remember?
1: Uh, when I think of her now I still very feel very sad for her her past, but that was never anything I could change. But I feel happy for her that I managed to change the last two years. And her mental state, I was never really sure what happened because it was never my responsibility. So they just asked me not to visit her because she was very confused. They thought it would confuse me. So I was very regretful that I wasn't there towards the end. But I think it was for a reason because I don't think she really knew towards the end who I was or and I'd only just been through recently with my adoptive mother. So I think the protection now looking back on it was probably for a reason. Um, But the the happiest thing for me was actually burying her because that was very strange because when she died, I thought I I closed the book. And then a couple of weeks later, I was wondering what happened after that, because she was so unwanted um, in life um, that I really needed to know that she wasn't in death. And I remembered back to the funeral. I had been told when she was going to be buried. and I had decided I wouldn't go to the church because there would be so few people there and I might be recognised as the baby. And I sat at home. Funeral was at 11 o'clock and it was one of those awful Irish days. The rain was teeming down and I had had offers from friends and family to come with me to the funeral. I just couldn't do it. I just could not do it. But about quarter past ten, I started to have a panic attack. But would I regret it? Would it be mean on the rector who'd done so much for her? Would it be something, another form of abandonment? So I quickly jumped into some dark clothes and I grabbed a red rose on the way in. And I arrived at the church. The funeral had already started. And I just peeped through the gap in the double doors and I could see the coffin. And I could see only five people on one side and they were all from the nursing home and three on the other. And I thought, and the, it's a big church, but I just thought, that's probably the saddest vision I've ever had. And I also looked at the coffin and to me it was still, I knew it was her, but it was still a stranger's coffin. And I couldn't open the doors. The rector told me later he'd seen me and he'd actually told the funeral directors that I may arrive. So they knew who I was. So I just wrote a message on the red rose and said, rest of peace from the baby and put it in the coffin. And I left and I was very glad that I had left. And again, I went home and a few weeks later, I thought the book was closed. And again, another few weeks later, I began to wonder what happened to her after that. So I rang the rector and he was very pleased to hear from me because she had been cremated and he had left her ashes unburied in case I ever contacted him. So we made a decision to scatter her ashes at the back of the church. where a little kindergarten school goes in and plants sunflowers and she loved flowers so we arranged a day, there wasn't a funeral, we just arranged a day and my son Jack carried out her urn and we went to where they had planted the sunflowers and we scattered the ashes there and then I closed the book. Yeah, then, then it was okay and it was okay for me to know that she'd ended up in the right place.
0: And that you had provided her with such amazing dignity that had been denied her by pretty much everyone in her life. And that's why I want everyone to read your book. The beauty of this book is not least its honesty, but the fact that at no stage is there an ounce of resentment, your compassion for your story and your compassion for your birth mother is really beautiful. And I just want to say thank you so much for telling your story. It's a really difficult story to tell, but you tell it so eloquently and so beautifully. And I feel so privileged to hear it. I want everyone to read this book. Please read this. Please get other people to read this. I know sometimes there's still shame associated with these stories. And that's what we need to stop because these stories need to be told. And as in Sarah's story, great dignity can be given back to people that were denied it. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much, Sarah, for your time. And see you next time, everybody. If you'd like a copy of My Father Wasn't French, it's now available on Amazon Kindle and in the gutter bookshop in Doki.